Welcome to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. On this edition, we're going to hear from the two men in charge of the medical and equipment divisions of the Winnipeg Jets, head athletic therapist Rob Millette and equipment manager Jason McMaster. Sportsnet's Jeff Blair helps us preview the Toronto Blue Jays 2023 season coming out of spring training. We'll find out how the revamped CFL Combine went in Edmonton from TSN's Marshall Ferguson. But let's start with the weary but proud duo of Skip Kerry Anderson and Coach Reed Carruthers, who we caught up with at Lester Pearson Airport on their way home from a bronze medal finish at the World Women's Curling Championship in Sweden. Less than an hour ago, I've been working on this literally for about 36 hours uh, to try and get an interview with Kerry Anderson and the coach Reed Carruthers from Team Canada after uh, the second consecutive uh, bronze medal showing at the World Women's Curling Championships. It wrapped up yesterday, well, the wee hours of yesterday morning, our time with Canada knocking off Sweden 8-5 to for the bronze medal. Switzerland winning their fourth gold medal in a row. Now, there wasn't a world championship in 2020, but the Swiss have won it in 19 and 21, 22, and now 23 after doubling up on Norway, 6-3. to So uh, Team Canada left Sweden this morning. It has been a tough, tough day of travel, but they had a window of opportunity in between their flight from Toronto to Winnipeg. So uh, just a little while ago, I talked to both Kerry Anderson and coach Reed Carruthers about uh, the experience in Sweden. Just your your immediate thoughts as you uh, get set to come home tonight uh, after winning the bronze medal in Sweden. Well, yeah, we're pretty exhausted, and it's been a long travel day so far. But we're super excited to be coming home and with a medal. And I know we went there uh, to bring home gold, um, but uh, to bring home bronze is uh, pretty darn special as well. Yeah, especially when you have to play so close after uh, being in the semifinal and, uh, and you know, having to regroup after that. And now you've done that two years in a row. It was uh, pretty devastating after that game. We had our uh, one bad end and it just kind of went south for us. And this, like I made a really nice shot on my first and the skip made an in off. So I uh, can't take that away from her. She made a really great shot as well. and. Uh, to be able to park that game just showed the grit and the determination in us and the resilience that uh, we showed. And uh, to come out there and play a solid game, um, I was extremely happy with myself and the girls and to be able to park that game. Yeah. When you look back at the week overall, Carrie, uh, uh, you, know, you, you started off very strong um, and then uh, I'm I'm not sure why were things not going as well. Maybe in the middle of the tournament that they did for you, say through about the first four or five games. I would say that uh, we started off good, and uh, even in the U.S. game, um, we were set up to steal, and the other the skip made a really nice shot to win. So, you know, the other teams were just making those big big shots when we had them in trouble, and um, um, we also maybe missed a couple of shots here and there. And I know I did; I didn't play my best, but. Um, um, just trying to figure out the sheet and uh, every sheet was different and it was challenging. My brain never, never shut off. So, um, um, but um, I thought we did a really good job of uh, bouncing back when we um, had a loss. We never had any back-to-back losses. So um, that was a uh, um, pretty like, like an accomplishment for us and we're happy with um, coming home with the bronze. 
I just want to uh, pursue that a little bit further, if I could, when you said every sheet was different. Is it like that when yeah. you're playing, uh, you know, on the World Curling Tour or, or you're playing at the Scotties? Do the sheets differ as well, or is this something unique to the world? Well, this is the first time playing overseas in a world championship, so we're not really sure how what to compare it to. The ice that we've played on here has uh, usually been pretty consistent, and um, sometimes speed will change, but which that's okay. But uh, here it was there's different tendencies on each sheet. There was like a couple runs, or or even the speed would change uh, mid game, and then it would change again. So yeah, it was challenging that way, and we we were doing our best to adapt to that. And I guess just in, in closing our part of the conversation off, Carrie, uh, you have to tip your cap or whatever it is you tip in curling. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's your, your beer mug <laughs> to the, the Swiss. Uh, boy, do they, uh, I, I know you'd love to be in the position that they're in having won four consecutive world titles, but uh, uh, is that kind of what the, the carrot is at the end of the stick for you guys to one day be uh, as consistent as they have been on the world stage? They're a great team, and um, they've had so much experience at this. And for us, um, we haven't had a, a whole lot of um, of that experience. Um, a lot of our experience was in the COVID <laughs> era, <laughs> yeah. and um, and I think it's the way that they um, work their format too. They have a longer time to prepare for the world. For us, it was a two week turnaround. Like it's really challenging to uh, get caught up on your rest and practice and whatnot before going to world so i know um after the scotties we were pretty tired and uh, we tried to get as much rest but it's tough when you're constantly doing interviews or then you're trying to practice as well and uh so that uh it's, it's hard to uh to get that rest before world so it's a quick turnaround for canada having said all that uh, you have back-to-back bronze medals, and that should never, ever be forgotten, should it? Yeah, um, it's definitely a huge accomplishment. Um, we uh, fought hard for that that medal, and um, we're happy with it. Like we, if we were to come home with nothing, that would be pretty devastating. So uh, we'll take the bronze. Uh, Reed, just maybe from a coach's perspective, uh, you know, because you play, so you know the difference between the two. How did you see the uh, the whole week unfold in Sand uh, Viking, rather? Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it was like I wouldn't classify it as a roller coaster, but just maybe more of an up and down. We had flashes of the best version of the team and also, you know, inconsistent points that probably, you know, cost us a, a chance at the at the championship, but, you know, it wasn't even our best week and we were still one, one end away from making our way to the final and, and, uh, and winning this thing. So, um, onward forward, lots to learn and get better at. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the big end, I mean, uh, for the most part, it worked in your favor, but at a real critical time, I guess, uh, that big end also uh, prevented you from, uh, from getting the color of the medal that you started out uh, wanting to pick up. Yeah, for sure. You know, we got to a scenario you know, where we were tied up playing the ninth end and we were trying really hard to, to get a force uh, and take the hammer to the to the tenth end and, you know, score the deuce and, and win. So, unfortunately, you know, Kerry made a really nice draw and uh, their skip made a, made a beauty double. Um, so, yeah, it, it cost us, but, um, you know, there's maybe a couple things we could have done a little bit differently that end um, to prevent, you know, that do-or-die situation, but 
you know, it is what it is. And again, Kerry said, you know, going overseas was kind of a first-time thing uh, for the entire rink. Uh, was there anything else you could put your th- uh, finger on, Reed? I would say, like, you know, this team, were they're definitely used to playing on premier ice. Um, you know, played played a schedule that was mostly slams and, and uh, you know, the Scotties, and then they played the pan-continental Pan event that was, uh, you know, so those are six or seven major events that they played on that was, you know, absolutely awesome ice. And then we're playing on ice that was a little bit tricky. And I feel like, you know, it's kind of the perfect storm to to maybe get uh, get a couple misses out of this team. Is there any way you can, I don't know, plan, game plan for that or from a coaching aspect to, you know, try to uh, work that to your advantage as opposed to it being a challenge? Yeah. Or- yeah, I definitely have to think on that. Like, you know, we're a day removed from the championship and there's there's definitely a lot to unpack uh, from the event in general. Uh, but yeah, you know, I've done, done some initial thinking on that, but, you know, the planning planning of the schedule is something that we'll, that we'll have to look at. But, um, you know, before this event started, I expected to be going to an event where uh, the ice is great. So, um, you know, for us, you know, we showed up and it wasn't, it wasn't bad, but it just wasn't, it wasn't consistent and, you know, neither was our play. So it kind of led to, led to our, our, uh, disappointing, um, lack of gold, but, you know, to come away at the bronze is great. That is Reed Carruthers, the head coach of, uh, team Canada and Kerry Anderson and the skip, uh, also, and, I'll tell you, our appreciation uh, very sincerely goes out to the both of them. Well, the Winnipeg Jets on a California road trip. And a couple of weeks ago, I pitched this idea at the director of communication, Scott Brown. said, you know what? I'll bet you it would be really interesting uh, for listeners of the CJOB Sports Show uh, to uh, have the opportunity to hear uh, what members of the training staff uh, did to get their positions, but most importantly, how hard they have to work and the myriad of details that go into their job. So uh, Scott was kind enough to set that up for us. So earlier on in the road trip, I had a chance to talk to both Rob Millette, the uh, head athletic therapist, as well as Jason Masterson, who is the equipment manager. We'll talk to Jason next hour. Uh, coming out of the 8 o'clock news. Uh, but for now, here's the conversation that I have with Rob Millett. He's the uh, head athletic therapist for the Jets, has been uh, since they relocated from Atlanta. And we started with uh, how he got started uh, in this profession. I went to uh, University of Manitoba to get my degree in athletic therapy, certified nationally. Once I graduated, the Manitoba Moose were actually looking for an assistant that could do uh, medical and equipment. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, I used to work at sports traders on Pemina highway. Uh, I knew how to, uh, I knew how to do, uh, skate sharpening and changing holders and repalming gloves, that sort of thing. And, uh, that allowed me to get hired as, uh, hired on with the moose. And then I did, uh, three years there as the, uh, assistant therapist slash assistant manager. Uh, opportunity came about for the head position with the Moose. I got hired on there, uh, thanks to some uh, great support from Mike Bernstein of the Vancouver Canucks and uh, Craig Heisinger with the Moose. Uh, I spent six seasons as the uh, head therapist for the Moose. 
and then was fortunate enough to get promoted to the Winnipeg Jets in 2011. And uh, here we are now. Did you know uh, when you were going to school and, and maybe I guess, you know, once you started working uh, in the American Hockey League, uh, just all that this job would entail, both in terms of knowledge, uh, but more importantly, in the hours that you have to spend doing the job? I had a pretty good idea how uh, how the hours were going to uh, unfold. I started as a student therapist with the University of Manitoba Bisons. Uh, as I was going through school, I traveled to the team. We practiced. We, I helped do all the laundry there. So I had a decent idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, I'm not sure my my wife <laughs> knew what was coming. Um, but she had a good idea, too. Um, I, you know, traveling early uh, with, with school and then getting hired on with the moose. She, she understood that there was going to be some travel and, and some time away from the family. So let's now get to what a, a typical workday looks like. And, and I've split it up into a, a couple of different categories. And Rob, if there's not much differentiation, then that's fine. But uh, let's just take a, a, a stab at a typical workday for you and your staff uh, in the athletic therapy uh, equation of things uh, on a, a game day at home. Uh, game day at home, generally show up to the rink around 8 a.m., uh, get the room ready, get the cold tubs filled up, get the hot tub going, um, you know, get our, our prep ready for the day. Generally, we have uh, injured or IR players come in first thing in the morning so that we can spend time with them, do their treatment, uh, pass them off to uh, to our strength and conditioning guys, Jake and uh, Kyle, so they can do their rehab uh, in the gym and then get a workout in. Uh, generally, main players will show up about 9.30. Uh, we can do a, a round of treatment on them before they get onto the ice for 10.30 skate. Uh, skate, usually 20, 25 minutes max. Guys will come off the ice. Uh, they'll come for round two uh, treatment uh, after the morning skate. They will uh, they will head off and have some lunch, and then they'll take off for uh, you know an afternoon nap and come back around four o'clock. Uh, between that time, we generally uh, try to catch up on our emails, get our paperwork done, uh, charting notes, that kind of thing. Working uh, with the extra players still if they're still around. Uh, maybe try to squeeze in a little lunch and a workout, and then away we go. Players are showing up at 4 o'clock. Uh, we can do another round of treatment on them, whether it's you know manual therapy or stretching, that kind of thing, helping them with their warm-up before the game. Uh, game warm starts around uh, 6.30. Uh, we go out there on the bench, uh, making sure everybody's safe, just being ready for any uh, urgent uh, situations. Game's over maybe around 9.45, 10 o'clock. Uh, do the last round of therapy. Uh, manage any new injuries that might pop up from the game. Uh, deal with uh, what we need to there, whether it's uh, coordinating doctor's visits or sutures or dentist visits, depending on what happens during the game. And, you know, you should get home around 11, 11.30 at night. <laughs> oh, just a nice, uh, easy day. Uh, is there much a diff- of a difference, Rob, uh, uh, on the road? Uh, as we speak to you, you're in Southern California for the road trip. Uh, would there be much of a difference as far as the hours are concerned or would it be pretty much the same regimen? Uh, the hours are a little bit longer. You know, you're going to finish your game in the city uh, that you're at and then you're going to move to the next city right after the game. So depending on how long the flight is, 
uh, one time this year, we had an eight o'clock game in uh, Calgary, and then we had a back-to-back in Seattle at 5 p.m. So we were flying out of Calgary, let's say at uh, midnight, flying into Seattle for a uh, for a 5 p.m. game the following day, and we arrive at our hotel maybe at three in the morning after we after we land in Seattle, head to the rink, unpack all the gear, and then uh, and then you're there all of a sudden uh, doing it all over again on an off day. Are the hours at least a little bit shorter? Yeah, off days uh, a lot better. We we generally have a round of treatment in the, in the morning for the players, work on uh, whatever they got banged up the night before, or if there's something we've been working on for the last couple of weeks. We'll generally have an hour or two for the players, and then uh, we try to take a little time off uh, uh, for ourselves. So we got a really good good group of staff here uh, between the equipment managers and our uh, therapy staff and our strength staff. We get along uh, really well, so we like to hang out together and go out for nice dinners or maybe hit up a comedy uh, show, try to relax a little bit. Yeah, that that's uh, an important part you bring up because you guys are a team within the team. And the one thing I've noticed, Rob, that uh, maybe makes the training and equipment staffs unique in the National Hockey League, whether they're in your role, whether they're in Jason McMaster's role as the head equipment manager, and they've, they have tenure. Is that accurate? And if so, why is that? Uh, I think every team is different. You get trust uh, in your management, and your ownership, and and that they they keep you on. Uh, there is a lot of turnover though. Oh, there is more okay. than you would think. Okay. Yeah, you uh, some some of your friends you've known for a long time uh, put in a lot of work, and you know they do a a great job, and then all of a sudden you find out that uh, that a certain city is hiring a new staff. It's it's tough for sure. It's it's definitely a business and. Uh, it's difficult to stay in this league and it's fun when you're here and you enjoy every minute and do the best you can. You know, the things we take for granted, uh, whether it's medical supplies, uh, whether it's uh, medications, you know, in your department, do you have a specific idea of how much you need to get through a season? Are you ordering on a monthly basis? And, and, and have you been affected like the rest of the world with supply chain issues? Well, we definitely have been affected by supply chain issues. Uh, we generally, I would say we order, you know, once a month uh, certain things. And fortunately for us, we travel around uh, North America. So whenever we're able to, we try to pick up cold medicines in different cities or cough syrup or whatever and try to get our stock uh, fairly decently. Um, we don't just take care of 23 athletes. We take care of their the athletes, their families, their kids. The um, the Manitoba Moose, our draft picks, like I, we get phone calls, a player gets injured, a draft pick of ours, and we help coordinate a surgery or rehab or, you know, some somebody's uh, child gets ill. So we help them facilitate doctor's appointments and and we have children's medications on hand. Like we, we are constantly taking care of, uh, uh, I would say, 100 people at a time, management, management. Uh, ownership whoever needs something we we try to do our best to help them out so it's it's a 24 7 job my phone rings at all hours of the night uh when i'm on vacation whatever i was off uh, one year in italy and my phone was ringing in the middle of the night because of the time change and you know you answer the phone and do your best to to figure things out and my wife is unbelievable understanding woman she understands that uh my job is 24-7 on call, but as long as I'm able to be with her and, and kind of do, do everything and manage from my phone, uh, she she's very good with it. 
Yeah. And, and somewhere along the line, I guess you have to find uh, time to keep up to date on all of the latest uh, technology and all the latest knowledge and education in your field as well, I would think. Oh, yeah. It's changing every year. There's always something new out there and you try to keep up, but there's there's no real way to keep up. You know, you're you're doing your best. You think you find, found the uh, next greatest thing, which it might be, but it might be only that for six months. Like the players are so on the pulse of everything and they love change and they love new shiny objects and you know they don't want to they get used to furniture around the house you know you you forget things are there because it's just furniture you see it every day but if you if you have something shiny and new that keeps their attention and and that definitely uh helps along the way so that's difficult for sure we take courses every summer to try to uh keep our skill set tight improve every year we're always doing i would say two to three different courses a summer, uh, league-mandated meetings, just to try to stay sharp and uh, relevant. That is Winnipeg Jets head athletic therapist Rob Millette. Well, uh, we uh, had a chance last hour to speak to the head athletic therapist of the Winnipeg Jets, Rob Millette. Uh, Now to kick off this hour, the man who's in charge of the equipment, Jason McMaster. And... uh, what uh, he uh, when did he make the decision that becoming an equipment manager was something that he wanted to do as a profession? I would say in grade twelve work experience in high school. I uh, I've actually always wanted to uh, be involved in hockey in some form, and uh, I did a, a work internship with Saskatoon Blades throughout uh, grade twelve in high school, and then continued with them uh, while I was working in a sports store after high school and uh, that's where i kind of got the passion to be uh for the for the equipment side of the job yeah when you first start out i guess you're doing both jobs uh but was equipment kind of where you steered towards was that where the greater interested uh, uh was in terms of making this a career yes like when i worked in uh in i was doing both medical and equipment but uh definitely my strong suit was the equipment and had a lot of great help from some very good doctors and uh, physios on the medical ends because that's uh, that is a very uh, unique job within itself. It takes special people to do it to to the way it should be done. You mentioned uh, Larange. I would imagine that was one of the first uh, jobs that you had. Uh, uh, what kind of a path did you have to travel to get to where you are today? Uh, a great path. It started with Saskatoon Blades, and then as a just more of a I mean, an assistant, we'll say, and then moved on to Larange. Then I went to Leftbridge of the Western League as an assistant equipment manager. Then I went to the Vancouver Giants of the Western League as the head equipment manager. Then to the Manitoba Moose for three years as the head equipment manager. Then to the Los Angeles Kings for one year as the assistant equipment manager. And then 2011 is when the uh, Jets came back. And uh, so I was offered the head equipment manager job uh, in Winnipeg. So I uh, moved from LA back to Winnipeg. And uh, I guess uh, as you uh, went along this path, it became uh, more and more apparent that uh, uh, work days are, are long. I, I, I'm not sure if you would add rewarding. You probably would if you'd been at it for this long. But uh, maybe from an equipment manager perspective, Jason, uh, talk a little bit about what your average day looks like. Let's start with an off day uh, uh, when the team is either just practicing, whether it's on the road where you're joining us from, or whether it's at Canada Life Center. Yeah, well, uh, we'll do a 2 fold talk you through a road trip. We truck the equipment from uh, Anaheim up to L.A., 
uh, five of us unpacked at the practice rink, and then we just stayed uh, at a hotel across the street, so it's nice and close. Yeah, and what time did you get wrapped up after the Anaheim game? You know what? It was very early. It was 11.36 we finished at. Wow. Which is not normal. Normally, it's 1.30, 2.30, 3.30. That's normally what it is, so this was a nice treat. Yeah, so say if you're flying from St. Louis to Nashville or something like that, that's where that 1.30 uh, uh, comes into play. Yeah, you got to account just average, say, half an hour to the airport, half an hour wait at the airport, half an hour to load the gear, half an hour to get to the rink, 45 minutes to unload. So, I mean, you're looking at two and a half, three hours uh, after you leave the rink to the time you're going to, plus your flight time. Right. Now, so when, it, sure, it sure adds up. Yeah, with the loading and the unloading, is that done in concert with the, uh, the medical staff as well? Do those guys uh, uh, work with you on that? We're fortunate in Winnipeg where we have a great staff. There's eight of us total, and you say there's two departments. There's actually three now because the strength and conditioning side is such a huge component to the performance of the athletes as well. We have we have the on-pack crew, which is um, myself, and Mark, and Robert, who are my two assistants, and then as well as Al Pritchard, the massage therapist. Jake Wolf and Kyle Variant are the... Uh, two strength coaches they come with us as well to uh unpack so there's there's six of us that go and i would imagine you guys have it down to a fine science by now everybody knows their job yeah one guy goes uh sets the uh bags out i set the bags out to where they need to go in their proper stalls because i like to keep the guys the players like to be in the same stalls in each city so i keep record of that three of us that unpack the bags uh two guys that move the trunks in their locations and then uh the change room gets set up by the other guys. You mentioned some of the logistics here, but so matter of factly, you say, yeah, you know, we load it on the truck, we take it off the truck. Does each team help out with that with their truck? Like when somebody comes into Winnipeg, do you send your truck out to pick up their equipment and help them out that way? Correct. Each team has a staff member who takes care of the visiting team, whether it be a third equipment manager on the full-time staff or a fourth equipment manager who's sole job is the visitors they are in charge of every need from the time the plane lands to the time the plane leaves laundry to uh any grocery runs uh, picking the gear up and taking it back right to the airport so now on a game day say at canada life center like let's turn the clock back to when you hosted the arizona coyotes uh last week what time yeah. would you be at the rink uh, for the start of your workday, and what time would you get finished up and maybe give us the Coles Notes version of everything that goes on in between? Yeah, so you got game day there. I believe the day before was an off day. So I got to the rink, but we got home late, so I got to the rink about 10, went home about 3. So it's still, I mean, even though the players are on the ice, you're still there for a good four to six hours on a on a player off day. Get all the skates ready for the next day, along with all the other paperwork and uh, repairs and, and whatnot that go along day to day. And then uh, game day, we arrive uh, about 8 a.m. And it's really just taking care of players' needs and trying to organize from all the stuff that's come in while you're on the road or put stuff away, doing some inventory checks and doing some reorders. And you're, you're really doing that all morning while uh, taking care of any players' uh, requests that come in, whether they want to heat up new skates or get new gloves or talk about their stick patterns or whatever's on their mind. You're always working, but uh, once the players come in with a press, you uh, go attend to their needs and then move on. Would the actual game be the, uh, I don't want to say the easiest part of your day, uh, but maybe the, the part where, you know, you're, you're not having to run around as much? 
Uh, some games are uh, like now with the changeable blades where you just pop the blades out, put a new, another fresh pair in if they get dinged up or anything. Some nights you're running around changing steel the whole game or changing visors or cutting sticks down for guys. Or some games you're running around like getting a good sweat on and there's other <laughs> nights you just stand there and hand towels them. I would imagine those nights are far and few between. You just rattled off uh, all of these different things that you do with respect to equipment. So when you're ordering, I mean, how do you keep track of that? And is that your job or do you have some assistance from the guys working for you? I mean, that just would seem to me to, to be uh, something that would take a heck of a lot of coordination, organization, and I guess experience. Yeah, my job is really the best work now. It's, it's the uh, working with the players on equipment specs and ordering and inventory and making sure you have a good handle on what's in inventory and working with the company so you're forecasting uh, how much equipment you need to bring in and when with all the uh, with timelines about increase tenfold since COVID and all the uh, work shortage. So that's a big part of my job is uh, making sure I have enough equipment, but also make sure I don't get stuck with equipment either if a player changes teams or the specs that the player use, like if they want to make a stick change or skate change, you got to keep that in mind because you don't want to get stuck with a bunch of inventory either. Just in terms of uh, a budget, what would an average team be looking at, Jason? Uh, an average team in the NHL overall, you're you're looking at one to one and a half million. That's a fair chunk of money. That's a lot of money to keep uh, to keep organized, keep track of. Yeah, when I'm standing in the scrums uh, waiting to do the uh, uh, the general player interviews after a morning skate or uh, after a practice on an off, I noticed even in the drawers there's waxed and there's non-waxed skate laces. And I would imagine some are shorter, some are longer, and I'm just using that as one of the many examples of the, the equipment that you have to keep up on. Well, it's funny you brought up laces. I just found out today from my supplier I need to order my year supply of laces for next season, next week, <laughs> because of uh, factory shortage time. There's uh, thick and thin in both wax and non-wax, and there's, uh, what do we carry? One, two, four different lengths. What is the greatest advance from an equipment uh, aspect, Jason, that has occurred in your 12 years with the Winnipeg Jets? Uh, is there one thing in particular, or maybe it might even be a couple things? I, I, there's a couple, but uh, the one is the changeable skate blades now. It's the best and worst thing to ever happen. And when you say that is best case, player never loses, misses a shift anymore. It comes to the bench, gets his blades changed, and away he goes. But now, if uh, it's a little nick, the player feels it and wants him changed. In the past, you never did that. So the amount of steel you go through now is three times more than we ever did in the past. And just the manpower it takes to uh, stay on all that. One other thing, I, I, I and I don't know how when it started, who started it, uh, but the gloves uh, being dried in-game, you always see gloves getting tossed by a player to a member of the training staff, and they're giving them uh, uh, dry gloves. Did that just start recently, or has that been going on for quite a while? That's been going on for, well, when I got into the NHL 13 years ago, we were doing it then. Yeah. With the moose, we only did it between periods, so it's been going on at least 13 years for sure. <laughs> Jason McMaster, the equipment manager of the Winnipeg Jets. You know, we never even got into all of the the jerseys and socks and towels that have to be washed on a daily basis, uh, all of the tape that has to be kept on hand. I mean, we we just kind of touched the surface there, but 
It is a lot. Hopefully, you've got a greater appreciation uh, when you're going to the game on Friday night against Detroit or uh, any one of the other four home games before the end of the regular season. You see those guys behind the bench, and it gives you a little better idea of what they do to contribute uh, to the success of the Winnipeg Jets. That's uh, Jason McMaster, uh, the head equipment manager for Winnipeg. Earlier today, in their second-to-last game of uh, spring training, the Toronto Blue Jays lost 5-2 to the Philadelphia Phillies. They're now 17-14 and in Grapefruit League play, which I don't know how much that matters, but uh, it, what matters more is getting ready for Thursday in St. Louis and beyond. And to help us uh, with some insight and some information on that, I have uh, solicited the services of a good friend, a longtime colleague, but more colleague, more importantly, though, just a great, great guy who spent a lot of his life in Morden, Manitoba, a terrific writer and a broadcaster as well. I mean, the guy is everything. His name is Jeff Blair. Jeff, welcome to the show. Oh, Cal, you're too kind, but keep it up. I don't mind. Yeah, <laughs> you can. Hey, in this day and age where we're all getting ripped on social media or whatever, a few nice words are uh, never a bad Absolutely. thing. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, so the record aside, uh, how have things gone for the Jays at spring training in Dunedin this year? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine they could have gone any better. You know, knock on wood, uh, no serious injuries, you know, minor setback, I guess, to Mitch White, who was auditioning for the fifth starters spot. He'll start the year in the IL. But, uh, you know, uh, everybody else is healthy. And you say Kikuchi? has had a good spring, hasn't given up a home run. And it's not just the numbers. You're right. I mean, spring training numbers tend not to mean anything because everybody, especially in the first three weeks of spring training, everybody's working on something, and it's more about process than results. But in the case of Yusei Kikuchi, not giving up a home run, um, adjusting, making a slight mechanical adjustment with his arm angle, and, and, and most importantly, I guess, from the Blue Jays' point of view, really seeming seemed to really have taken to the pitch clock. It seems to have uh, really improved his game. I think it's a classic example of don't think too much. You're only going to hurt the team. And um, that was one of you say Kikuchi's problems. I think last year he often thought himself into issues. So, you know, Kevin Kiermeyer has looked really healthy. He's had a great camp from a health point of view. Whit Merrifield's had a great camp from a health point of view. Uh, Bo Bichette, Vladdy Jr., Brandon Belt had a slow start, but he's come on. And it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's really going to come down to, I think, for this team this year, can Yusei Kikuchi and Jose Barrios, um, you know, can, can, can one of those two guys give the Blue Jays something close to 200 innings and the other guy give them something close to 140 innings? And, and that's, that's kind of where, where the Jays are right now. That's, that's the big question. That has less to do with health and more to do with performance. And uh, Jose Barrios had a, he had an okay spring. He had a horrible world baseball classic, yeah. but, but the Jays, they seem to think that was more a question of pitch selection than anything else. So yeah, everything is, everything looks really good. So what does the starting rotation look like then, Jeff? Uh, if uh, say, if today was Thursday, uh, what would we be looking at for the rotation? We know Alec Manoa is going to get the opening day ball. Right. Alec, Alec Manoa would get the start in opening day. Kevin Gossman would go in the second game, which should theoretically 
barring weather or anything like that, set him up to pitch the home opener uh, against Detroit. And that'll be followed by Chris Bassett, uh, Jose Barrios, and then you say Kikuchi. So uh, that's the order right now. I can't imagine they would flip it around with, with Kikuchi and Barrios. I mean, they have a certain, they've got an off day baked in, so maybe they can do that, but those are the five. And um, I, I guess if there's, if there's a concern for this team, it's that once you get past those five, the starting pitching depth, the next man up in AAA is not really good. And, and that mm-hmm. would probably be, that would probably be the biggest concern. I mean, they have a bunch of guys you'd be okay with making one start, but until Mitch White gets stretched out, there's literally nobody on that at AAA that you would want making more than, than one start for the team. And, and I mean, that has to be an issue because we know that throughout the year, starting pitchers are going to get hurt. And a lot of times you need eight to nine, sometimes even 10 guys to give you starts to get through a year. And right now, uh, the Jays, you know, beyond those top five, boy, they're scuffling. They really yeah. are scuffling. Yeah. Uh, will Eugene Rue ever pitch again? Interesting, interesting thought. Uh, yeah, he will. Um, he's, you know, he's progressing. I think the best case scenario for the Blue Jays is he maybe is ready to go at the end of July, but they're, they're looking at Hyunjin Ryu right now as just found money, right? If yeah. Hyunjin Ryu can help them, that's great. If he, if he can't help them, um, I don't want to say so what, cause I don't want to belittle him, but if he, he they're, they're not counting on something from right. him. Let's, yeah. let's put it that way. But yeah, yeah, if he comes good, if he comes good, he could certainly, he could certainly help you out in August and September. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, because as I was listening to you talk about the lack of depth uh, once you get past the big club, you know, th- that was kind of the light bulb that went on in my mind. When is he coming back, and is he a guy that could maybe uh, fill a few holes uh, if they develop? Jeff Blair, who does absolutely everything. He broadcasts, he writes, he podcasts, uh, he does it all, uh, is joining us uh, with a preview uh, of the Toronto Blue Jays. So uh, we're not going to have the crowded house uh, behind the plate this year, uh, Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen will take care of that. Were you surprised uh, when the Jays traded young Gabriel Moreno? Because uh, everything we heard before this young guy called up was he was the real deal, uh, could be the next big thing for the Jays. Yeah, not really for a couple of reasons. He's he's not going to be the offensive catcher Alejandro Kirk is. Mm-hmm. And, you know... He's a top prospect, but and and when the deal was made, you know a lot of people were up in arms. But you know, yeah. the question to people was this: This is about winning in the next three years, because that's basically how long you're going to have Vladdy and Bo. Once you get mm-hmm. past three years, you're starting to look at losing probably one of them to free agency, maybe two of them, uh, maybe they sign. But the point is, you've got a three-year window right now, and is Gabriel Moreno going to help you win this year? Well, the answer is no. He's not the hitter Alejandro Kirk is, and he's not the defensive catcher Danny Jansen is, and they're not carrying three catchers. I mean, they just aren't. So from the Blue Jays' point of view, the thought was, okay, get more balance, get a left-handed bat in here. It's something the Jays desperately needed. 
but also get somebody in in Dalton Varsho who is is a way above average defender, one of the best defensive outfielders in baseball. And what Dalton Varsho has going for him is he can not only play left field, but you could stick him in center field and mm-hmm. and get away with that as well. So right now the Jays are in a position where they've got Varsho, Kevin Kiermaier, and George Springer in right field. That's probably the best <laughs> outfield defense they've had since, I mean, my gosh, going back to the days of Jose Cruz Jr. and those guys. They, they had terrific outfield yeah. defense back then. So, n- no, I, I wasn't surprised. They got pretty much what I thought they would get for Gabriel Moreno. And again, Dalton Varsho gives them a better chance of winning in 2023 and 2024 than Gabriel Moreno does. It's, it, it, it's, it's really that simple. Just a couple more for you, Jeff, uh, before we let you go. And I certainly appreciate you giving us some time here uh, tonight for this uh, Blue Jays preview. Major League Baseball with uh, a couple of uh, interesting rule changes. Um, I know with the, uh, the, the, the sped up uh, pitch clock, if you will, uh, there was some thought that, well, maybe there'll be pitchers that will be affected by this. Kevin Gosman, I know uh, he was kind of under the, uh, or at least under the spotlight uh, at the start of spring training. Have you noticed at all? Uh, any of the pitchers uh, uh, after the first couple of uh, starts uh, for Grapefruit League play uh, who, who still appear to be uncomfortable with this? No, if anything, it's the hitters. Uh, Kevin Gossman's had probably the best spring he's had of his career. Yeah. Uh, you, you say Kikuchi, again, I think the pitch clock has helped him. Alec Manoa was probably the guy that I had a little bit of concern with because he's paired with Alejandro Kirk, and, and they have had some minor issues <laughs> with the pitch clock. Chris Bassett's a guy who's got eight different pitches. I think the real key for the Blue Jays is if, it, as it appears, baseball is going to allow the pitchers to call their own pitches and use pitch comm this year uh, instead of just simply letting the catchers do it. If Chris Bassett gets that freedom, that's going to make things a lot easier for Danny Jansen and a lot easier for the Blue Jays. The one thing I would focus on, though, it hasn't been talked about a great deal. It hasn't really manifested itself all that much in spring training because of the nature of the games. But the guy that I have a lot of concern about is Jordan Romano because he's had issues holding base runners to begin with. He's got some quirkiness to his delivery, not as much as when he came up, but he's the guy that worries me because you can't afford to have a guy on first base and outthink yourself by stepping off the mound or you, you, you just, you just can't. And, and that's the guy that I think I'm going to be watching really early in the year to see how he adapts to it in, in a, in a pressure situation, ninth inning, you know, against, uh, against the major league team, major league umpires, the crowds, the games on the line, all that stuff. How is he going to handle the pitch clock? Because, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that there are teams that are going to pick on him, going to try to steal bases off him, going to try to make him really uncomfortable. That's the guy that I'm really concerned about more than anybody. Well, now on two with a limit on the throws to first, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, pitchers having to speed up their delivery, uh, probably stolen bases would be the next idea. And then, of course, more offense uh, with the elimination of the shift. How do you think all this translates into how Toronto likes to play the game. I mean, I don't, it's, 
Toronto's still going to live and die with home runs. I mean, there's a reason yeah. that they brought the, the fences in a bit at the Rogers Center and, and shortened them a bit. Uh, it's hard to tell because we really didn't see in spring training. Uh, you know, we, we, you, yeah, teams shift every now and then, but it's not to the same degree that you see in, in, in the regular season. And you seldom see it in late innings because a lot of times the major league players aren't in in late innings and spring training. Look, I would think that, you know, not so much the shift, but I look at a guy like Brandon Belt, and I look at the fact that he played in San Francisco, a ballpark that worked against his power and also had the shift thrown up against him. I can see a guy like Brandon Belt really, really, really having success in the Rogers Center. I mean, if you just look at a graph of his home runs hit in San Francisco the last three years and look at his his hard hit balls that weren't home runs and transpose the Rogers center uh, outfield wall instead of the San Francisco outfield wall. He's got an, like an extra 30, 35 home runs. So I think he's a guy who might be helped by it. The biggest concern in Toronto with the shift Kelly isn't so much the hitters. It's what does it do to Bo Bichette's game? Because yes. Bo Bichette's defense has always been questioned. Will the shift help him? There's a school of thought that he's such an athletic shortstop that sometimes having to throw on the run and not having to, to think about things might work to his benefit. But, you know, I look at it this way. He had maybe the best defensive third baseman in the game beside him last year in Matt Chapman, mm-hmm. and the shift was in play, and he still had difficulty making plays. That's what I'm going to be watching for in terms of the shift. Not so much offensively, but how will Bo Bichette handle the shift and, and is it going, or the lack of the shift? And is it going to put more pressure on him or have the sort of the reverse effect and, and, and free him up. And I just think that I think the jury's out in that. We won't know that he has to make that first tough play in the eighth inning of a game. We won't know how it's going to work out. Wow. Lots of great stuff to unpack there. Jeff Blair, thanks a bunch for this, man. Uh, I, I knew you would dazzle us uh, with all the uh, great insight that you'd have to share. Uh, and we'll look forward to seeing if some of that uh, plays out over the course of 2023. Thanks, Kelly. And do me a favor. Can you do something yeah. about the Jets? Can you do something about the Jets, please? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that is that. You know what? That's next on my list. <laughs> thanks, thanks, you got her, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff Blair. Be well. uh, Blair and Barker, uh, of course, sportsnet.ca. Jeff uh, also uh, as a radio show. I mean, he, he does TV. He does absolutely everything. And uh, from uh, Morden, Manitoba, one of our guys uh, on uh, the big stage and uh, uh, certainly a go-to whenever you want to know what's going on with the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, thank you very much for listening to the CJOB Sports Show podcast. If you like what you heard, guess what? You can hear more every weeknight on CJOB from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Of course, that is when the Jets are not playing because if the Jets are playing, then I don't have a show, but I'll be part of the pre- and post-game coverage. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in. Subscribe if you'd like. We're available on iTunes and other places I'd imagine. So farewell until we meet again. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that they should come to this Try to warn you over the day. You may not share our intellect.